Morning. I'm not as tall as he is, so we're going to pull that down so it's not in my line of vision. Happy to be here preaching with you before y'all today. I'm doing double duty at the moment, but that's all right. We're going to be in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. Craig told me a couple uh, a couple months back that uh, this is this is the particular passage that he had bookmarked for me to to preach, and I looked at it, and it's on circumcision. So I gave him a big thank you. This is going to be fun, but I'm actually not going to preach on that particular topic because the passage is not actually about that. We're going to be talking about legalism, actually, and that doesn't sound like much fun, but it's important to understand what legalism is and how it can harm our faith and our witness. So we know from Scripture that uh, uh, Jesus healed three blind men. One was healed when he touched him, another was healed when he spoke, another was healed when he put mud on his eyes, and imagine these healed men got together and decided to have a conference and decide what was the best way to be healed, and all the blind men in the area came together to see what was going to be decided, and they didn't decide on anything, and the blind men went away blind, never having heard about Jesus. This is what legalism is, and this is what we're going to see in this passage. So I'm going to read all 21 verses, verses 1 through 21. It's kind of lengthy. If you can, you're able. Uh, Would you stand for reading God's Word if you have to stay seated? That is perfectly fine. Begin with verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the necks of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we, are by, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they relayed. This is, all stars are here at this conference, by the way. We've got Peter and Paul and Barnabas now. They listened to Paul, Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James is there also. Reply, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited Gentiles to take from them uh, a people for it, to take from them a people for his name. And with these, this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and will restore it. Then the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of, of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual morality and from what has been strangled and from blood. 
For from ancient gener generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath, every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you for the power of the testimony that we find in this passage. God, we thank you for what we're going to learn from it, um, from the salvation of the Gentiles and, and the willingness of the believers to consider things unexpected from you, God. And I pray that today that we would also consider the unexpected, that we would leave here looking for you in places we've never looked before so that we might find you at work in ways we've never expected, God, in our own lives and those around us. In the name I pray, amen. So this is legalism in the church where we spend so much time talking about methods and rules the way we do ministry, the proper way to worship, the, uh, that the spiritually hungry, the needy, and the restless go away unsatisfied. Because no one thought to mention Jesus. People can be so focused on the hows and whys that they forget the reason and the source. They are so focused on the rules that they forget grace. This is the issue at hand here. And yes, the all-stars came out. Peter, James, Paul. Barnabas, because grace is so important, they all had something to say about it. That's what we're going to look at today. First point I'm going to talk about is grace, not works. So the, the, the question of circumcision is the question of the conversion to Judaism. There were some that wanted the Gentiles to take steps of full conversion to become Jews, Okay. That's what's going on here. That's the question at stake. That, that to be truly said to be Christians, they had to first be fully converted to Judaism. If Christianity is the natural outgrowth of traditional Judaism, this is what they thought, Christianity came out of us, then Judaism should be the framework for all Christians. That's, that's the legalism we're dealing with here. The same kind of legalism that bred the Pharisaic attitude prior to the establishment of the church. It's the same thing that's here. And it, it's, it's no coincidence that it's the converted Pharisees that's pushing this idea because it's what they know. It's what they've been indoctrinated to teach. That to have a true relationship with God is to follow the law and that grace and the relationship with God is actually secondary to, to the law. I don't want to be too hard on these Pharisees here because I, I want us to also re realize and recognize that these Pharisees are, have become Christians, that they believe. And we can see this passage as an example of how Jesus changes our thinking when we focus on the kingdom of God. Yes, they struggled with their old ways of thinking, but they let God change their thinking because they saw the kingdom as more important to their traditions. These Pharisees don't end the passage believing the same thing that they believed at the beginning. Beginning in verse 6, Peter tries to com combat this ritualistic legalism explaining that these Gentiles have demonstrated a true heart for God, and, and that they should, it should be the only thing that matters in light of the grace of God. They've already talked about this on a smaller scale in chapter 11 when Peter brought word that the Gentiles were getting saved. 
Okay? There was no doubt about God's willingness to accept the Gentiles. We've already crossed that bridge. And the Christians in Jerusalem agreed with that in chapter 11. But at that time, they did not deal with the requirements of the law. The Old Testament law was given so that the Israelites would be held accountable to God's standard of holiness. Should these new Christian converts be held to the same standard? So what is at stake in chapter 15 is whether or not traditional Jewish religious framework should be put on top of Christianity, on top of the grace of God, on top of the good news of Jesus. And Peter is making the argument that grace, grace is all that matters. Here several months back, I told the story on Wednesday night, so a lot of you weren't here to hear that. Um, I was coming into work and I was, I was coming down... Uh, down the hill though, at, the, at the main intersection at 601, and the sun got in my eyes because at that time of the year, the sun was like coming right over the horizon, right there where the lights are, as I was coming down that hill, and I don't know what happened. I swear the light was green, but apparently it was red, and I ran it, blinded by the sun. Um, there at 601, right there by Steeplechase, uh, there was a deputy right there. Uh, right in front, right there. He was at the front of the line. So he got the front row show. And uh, immediately, just kind of just right hand turn, and got right behind me, pulled me over in front of Wells Fargo. He came and knocked on, uh, knocked on over down my window. He came to and asked me. And his, his question was, he, his first question was, are you okay? We almost hit you. Are you okay? He didn't give me a ticket. Because apparently I ran the red light like someone who's not okay. <laughs> I'm thankful that he had the grace to see that something wasn't right and he didn't focus on just enforcing the law. Imagine, imagine if God never showed us grace every time we broke the law. Jesus came and said, are you okay? Let me make it okay. Paul is on the scene here. And he will later write to the Ephesians in chapter 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast. The church today, when I say church, I'm not talking specifically, I'm talking about the big church. Okay, The church today, is still fighting the same battle. There are those in the church, the big church, that say we have to do all the right religious things in order to be good Christians. We have to dress a certain way. We have to speak a certain way. We have to worship a certain way. And what we fall into the trap of doing is trying to place a religious framework or box over the grace of God. We fence it in. And it undermines our freedom in Christ, our freedom from sin. It undermines our joy. It undermines the mission of the church because we spend more time worrying about conforming to the framework and following the rules than we do actually serving God. We can do all the right things in the world, but grace is the only thing that brings salvation. Grace is the only thing that gives us hope. Grace is the only thing we have that's worth celebrating. No thing, no action, no religious framework could ever replace grace. 
Instead of putting a framework over the grace of God, we should instead allow the grace of God to direct our actions through the Holy Spirit. Listen, we don't have the power to define God. God defines us. And any rules we put in place are merely in service of helping us better understand our role in God's story. That was the whole part of the point of the Ten Commandments, to help us learn how to love God and to love others. It was never meant to be a substitution for God. God said through the prophet Samuel that he'd rather have obedience than sacrifices. It's something we need to be reminded of in the modern church. We, we're quick to teach against legalism, right? But it's not always something we practice. We, we need to be reminded that it doesn't matter how many good things or religious things you do. Grace is what matters. If you don't have it, you don't have the forgiveness that you're looking for. It doesn't matter how far you are from God, how much you fall when you try to do right, what you've done in the past, or even what mistakes you might make in the future. Grace is all that matters. If you don't have it, you don't have the forgiveness you're looking for. Good things have no weight in the eyes of God because the world is full of good people who deny Christ. And the world is full of wicked people who proclaim the gospel. We are all equals in the eyes of grace because we are all sinners bought by grace. And what we need to make... We need to make that our source of joy, our source of unity, and our battle cry of missions to the community. That you can come as you are because God's grace is sufficient. God defines you. You can never define God. Second this morning, proof, not speculation. The one thing no one was denying was that the Gentiles were a part of God's salvation plan and that God had demonstrated his presence and and spirit with the Gentiles as witnessed by Peter and Paul and Barnabas. We've already testified to this in chapter 11. Along with all these other companions, right? These other people that had traveled with them and have come back to Jerusalem to testify. Now, what really stood out here in chapter 15, were the tales that went beyond a demonstration of the presence of God. They included signs and miracles. This meant that not, uh, let's, let's unpack it. This meant that God was not only uh, including the Gentiles in his salvation plan, but that he intended to include them in the greater work of the kingdom of God that Christians were called to do. They weren't just tagalongs. They were workers. You see it? There's a difference. That's the reason chapter 11 and chapter 15 are different. Chapter 11 is about them being saved. Chapter 15 is about more. The dynamic of what it meant to be in the service of God had changed. God's people were no longer limited to Israel. But anyone in the world could be one of God's people. This is James's admission in, in verse 14. To take from them a people for his name. You see it? God first visited Gentiles to take from them a people for 
for his name. The testimony not only proved that the Gentiles were a part of God's grace, but that God was taking them as a people under his name. And this changed everything because it completely destroyed the old dynamic and replaced it with a much larger vision of who the people of God were supposed to be. But, see, they, they, didn't, they didn't just take word for it, right? James is not just saying that, that this, is, this is what people are saying, and so we're going to take it at face value. No, James, what does he do? He goes back to Scripture. Proof in Scripture. The large vision was God's plan in the first place. James points that out. He cites Scripture found in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12 is where you can find that. But that's not the only place we see this. It can be traced throughout the entire Old Testament that the Gentiles were meant to be God's people too. It's in God's promise to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is not a call for superiority in the lineage of Abraham, but a prophecy of salvation. It's echoed to Abraham later in Genesis 17 and 22. We see it in the Exodus, Exodus chapter 12, a mixed multitude went with the Jews when they left Egypt. The Exodus, the symbol of salvation for the Jews, which pointed to the ultimate salvation through Jesus, included many other people groups that weren't Jewish. Included Egyptians, their oppressors, were included to be people of God. It was written into the laws. Leviticus 19, the stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In prophecy, Isaiah chapter 56, also the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Zechariah chapter 2, many nations will join themselves to, be to, to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Even the scripture explains that Gentiles will come to God. And so when these Christians began to hear all about what God, God was doing outside of their box, outside of their understanding, they went to scripture. Their definition of being God's people was the box they put God in, and now God was outside of it. It took digging into the scriptures and letting God's word change them for them to begin to see the heart of God at work. There's, there's so much deception in the world. It's hard to know what is really from God and what is an invention of man. We saw this recently with the Asbury Revival, which came under so much criticism, right? Is it really God working or is it, or is it an invention of man? Well, I can tell you this, for those who found God, for those whose hearts God moved in, God was working. And we can see evidence in Scripture that God moves in these kinds of ways. Scripture should be our standard evaluation tool. That's what they did here. They evaluate a testimony with Scripture. 
And when Scripture contradicts our religious box, you say we need to go with Scripture instead. This is where the legalism comes in. Not cross our arms and stay in the box. Let me say it one more time. When Scripture goes against our religious box, we go with Scripture. We don't cross our arms and stay in the box. I'm an artistic person. I love music. I love it loud. I love reading. I love art. All these things. Many, uh, uh, music is, is, is one of my heart languages. I love different kinds. Uh, I, don't, I don't like steel guitar. Sorry. It's the one instrument I just I, I would rather set on fire. It, it gives, me, gives me chills like somebody scratching a chalkboard. I'm sorry for all you country people. That's why I don't like country, by the way. That's why. I, 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 tell, I tell people this all the time. Oh, you don't like country? Why don't you like country? Everybody loves country. I don't like country because it's got steel guitar in it. If it's bluegrass, I'm okay. I'm okay with bluegrass. But don't put the steel guitar in it. You ruin it. I love artistic expression, drama, dance. All of these things are part of the creativeness that God has placed within us. All these things can be abused by the world. All these things can be found in Scripture as legitimate forms of worship. I ran into some college kids um, when we went to orientation with, with Aaron when, um, at Upstate. I ran into some college kids that, that were Christian. and um, they, come, they came from a Christian tradition that was uh, uh, Eastern European, I believe, and did not believe you should have instruments in your church. I wanted to say, have you even read the Bible? I didn't. I didn't challenge their beliefs. I didn't challenge any specific beliefs. But what I did do is encourage them to examine Scripture, examine what they believed against Scripture, and not to take anyone's word for it. You have the source right here. Go to the source. And it absolutely blew their minds that they could do that. That that was something that they were allowed to do. Broke my heart a little bit for them. If you don't know that you're allowed to do that, let me tell you, you are allowed to do that. You are allowed to examine your Bible and figure out why you believe what you believe. And you're allowed to hold us accountable for teaching this properly. And if you think that we're in error with tell us. You're allowed to do that. And if you go someplace and they tell you you're not allowed to do that, leave. It's a cult. <laughs> but this is all too common in churches. People don't know why they believe what they believe. They don't hold pastors accountable to their preaching with integrity. And some church leaders might even insist on being obeyed and followed and discourage, from, discourage you from digging in the Word. And I could go on. I could talk about how many churches want to do ministry in the community, but they don't really want the community to come inside the church. I could talk about how Christians speak about forgiveness, but they don't really want to exercise restoration. I could talk about how Christians have created religious sins that they hold people accountable for that are never mentioned in the Bible. So I wonder, have we gotten to the point where even Scripture no longer makes a difference? Have we gotten to the point where the assumptions we have based on our religious box have become more important to us than the Word of God? Is it more important to stay in your box, or is it more important to follow what God tells us in Scripture? When God is at work, there is proof. 
There is evidence in his power, the testimony of those in his will, and there will always be clarity and confirmation in the word of God. And when necessary, we have to correct, you see. When our box contradicts Scripture, we have to correct ourselves. Just like the early church did here. God was working outside their box, and James gave them Scripture and clarity. He said, look, this is what the Bible says. We need to go with this. So I've been speaking primarily at the moment to those in here who would identify with the critics, uh, these uh, in Jerusalem that are evaluating the Gentiles, uh, the establishment that we see in this passage. But I want to take a moment and speak to those who might identify with the Gentiles they're talking about. I want you to know that it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are or where you come from. The Scripture says there is a place for you in God's kingdom. Jesus did not die to establish a religious club. He died for the lost, the lonely, and the broken. He died for sinners. He died for you. He died for all of us in, in this room. All of us are sinners. That means you belong to, in the kingdom of God if you'll let Jesus into your heart. And no religious zealot can change that. Third this morning, discovery, not old habits. In order to move forward in the ministry that God had prepared for the new church, everyone involved needed to take a hard look at their old habits and evaluate whether or not they needed to be changed based on Scripture. To give them up for the sake of discovering renewed obedience to God and to get on board with God or to get left behind. The Jewish Christians who were clinging to the Old Testament religious framework had to come to terms with the fact that God had a bigger plan that went beyond their box. But the Gentiles weren't exempt either. They had their own religious boxes to deal with. What was good for Jewish Christians was good for the Gentile Christians. So once the Jewish Christians had the correct measure of the Word of God, once they've evaluated themselves evaluated their, their habits, their preconceived beliefs, their framework, their box. Once they've uh, established that God was doing something new, something exciting, and that Scripture actually proved it, and that they just missed it, and so they're reevaluating, they're changing their thinking, right? Once they'd done this, they recognized that the Gentiles also needed to forsake their old religious frameworks. Gentiles needed a little bit of this as well. Their instructions in verse 20 specifically apply to pagan religious rituals. They weren't just random. These are things that Roman pagans would do in worship to their gods. The Gentiles were instructed not to conduct worship of God in a pagan manner. And that was a life-changing instruction for them because they didn't know how to worship God any other way. This is how they grew up worshiping, how their parents worshiped. It was, if it was good enough for their old beliefs, why wouldn't it be good enough for their, for their beliefs? Uh, let me just take a sidebar for a second here. If you grew up believing a certain thing and were told to believe a certain thing about God and how to worship God, don't necessarily take that as scriptural. A 
Let God transform you through His Scripture into how He wants to be worshipped. And not how somebody told you to worship Him. Christians are telling the Gentiles, don't worship God the way you worship other idols. In order to move forward with God, these religious habits had to go away. In the case of the Jews, even though the old religious habits were rooted in God's truth, because they were, their religious framework was rooted in God's truth. That's where it came from. But even though it was rooted in God's truth, they had, it, it had become secondary to God's grace. They had elevated the rules above God's grace. The truth doesn't change, but their religious box had to change. They had to see beyond what they thought they knew to where God was working in new and unexpected ways. They had to let go of what they were always taught to do in order to find God moving the way he wants to through Scripture. Many of you know in here I'm currently working uh, doing some doctoral work and if the next few classes don't kill me hopefully this time next year I'll be writing my dissertation I'm already starting the, the first stages of doing research on it and I'm going to going to be doing this project on digital missions I got an idea from Aaron I got an idea from my son um, it's a familiar scene all of you parents know uh, the scene where you know your, your kid's playing a video game somewhere and uh, they hadn't done his chores yet, and you go in there and you remind them, you need to do your chores, and five minutes, five minutes, Mom, and no, do it now. And, well, similar, the similar thing happened, except it was something, something strange, something unexpected happened. Uh, I believe Deanna went in there to go remind him to do the dishes or whatever, and he said, he said, I'll do it in a few minutes, Mom. I'm currently telling somebody about Jesus. He's playing a video game. And later we talked to him a little bit about it, and he, he, he told us about all the uh, multiple opportunities he'd had to share his faith uh, through video games. And so that got me thinking and got me curious, and so I started looking into it and the video game world, which led me to the, the Twitch platform. If you don't know what Twitch is, it's a live streaming website. So we're, we're currently live streaming the service on YouTube, but Twitch is... The uh, one that's designed specifically for live stream. It's very popular with gamers. Um, but uh, gaming is not the only thing you can find on there. You can find just about anything you want. You can find people painting the walls of their house live right now and watch them if you want. They fish, they, they crochet, they do anything, anything. So, uh, so you know, talking to Aaron led me to here and I started digging into it and realized that 2.5 million people. 2.5 million people are on that particular platform at any given time watching somebody else do something. And so far, I've found less than 100 Christians who are trying to engage that platform with, with the gospel. I'll give you a comparison. 2.5 million is about the size of Chicago. That's like evangelizing Chicago would say, everybody over here in this wing, that might be about 100 people. I began to see 
a mission field I had, didn't even know was there. And, and, and these Christians, there are a lot of them. Uh, I've talked to several of them, at least 20, 25, 30 of them, called themselves digital missionaries. And so I've had some conversations with these guys. And, and looking into it has opened my eyes to a mission field I didn't even know existed. Opened my eyes to mission opportunities I'd never even considered. I've been challenged by these digital missionaries over what it means to create relationships in a digital space. I've been challenged about what it means to disciple someone you've never met. And there, there are even pastors that I've talked to who are church planting completely digital churches online. And, and even though I'm not, I'm not there yet, I'm not ready to say, okay, Digital church planting is, is a thing that we should be involved in. I'm not there yet. But they've challenged me to consider what it means to be a church. And I'm, I'm wrestling through a lot of what they've had to say. None of this was in my box. None of this was in, It's probably not in your box either. I've got the same questions you do. But when I hear the salvation stories, when I start hearing these people talk about how God has moved and saved people, it's obvious that God is moving in a place that's outside my box. You don't realize you've got a box until someone comes along and points to what God's doing on the other side of the walls. And I don't know about you, but box or no box, if God is moving, I want to be there. The habits we establish in our religious boxes hurt the church more than anything because habits, though originally begun with good intentions, often devolve into meaningless actions that become a form of idolatry to the thing rather than an inspired worship of God. The Gentiles in this passage thought their religious habits, their boxes, were important to their spiritual development. But what they did, did was nothing but meaningless idolatry. These pagan rituals, that's just idolatry, has no place in their new beliefs. To truly serve God, they need to do away with everything that didn't have God at its very center. By the same token, the Christians in this passage had grown up following the Old Testament law to the point of creating a religious box that superseded their relationship with God. To truly serve God as Christians, they needed to put the relationship first and allow those old habits to change. Christian or Gentile, Jew or Gentile in this passage, and I'm going to change my terms because they're all Christians, right? Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. God's outside the box. Get outside the box with him. And that's what we need to do today. When we've developed religious boxes and habits meant to contain God, as a way of making sense of our spiritual journey. We do this because, because it's a lot. And we've got to put up guardrails and, and walls to guide us. But over time, we just build up walls that block out our vision of God. It can quickly become meaningless 
idolatry. And suddenly we're more about painting the walls of our box and making them look pretty than we are actually about finding God. This is legalism. Serving the box rather than God. Following the rules we made for ourselves rather than following the footsteps of Jesus and following Scripture. This legalism uh, in our relationship with God, this dogmatic persistence to works rather than grace, builds up the walls of our boxes that will supersede our relationship to God. And it becomes more about the box. We've got to get out of the box and look around at what God is doing. We've got to get our eyes off the rules and back onto Jesus. The rules are good for us, sure. I'm not saying they're not. But it's not either or. If we're looking at Jesus instead of the rules, we're going to catch the rules because Jesus transforms us through his holiness. Jesus is here and the rules are here. If all you're shooting for is the rules, you're going to miss Jesus. If you're looking at Jesus, you get it all at one time. It's included. It's part of the package. You got to focus on Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. We read this verse and immediately think in terms of covenant. But we should also consider where Jesus is telling us to look. He's basically saying the law is still good, but I fulfill the law, so don't look at it, look at me. If worshiping God is a meaningless habit to you, then it's time to look at the walls of your box and start seeking God and seeking the scriptures to see God at work beyond your box. Look for Jesus. He'll take you to unexpected places. He'll show you unexpected things. And it's not all going to fit in your box, and that's okay. And you know if worship of God has become meaningless, has become a habit, because you don't feel fulfilled. You don't experience the presence of God. You don't allow yourself, uh, you allow yourself to be distracted by anything that doesn't fit in your box. You've lost your joy. And you know there should be something more than what you're experiencing. You know something isn't quite right. Because deep down, you may be a Christian. But when was the last time God moved you? And if you're not a Christian, that longing is to be moved by God. It gets lonely and boring and discouraging in the box. God may be moving, but your walls may be too high to see outside of it and to see what he's up to. Maybe you you can hear the noises, right? And you run to the wall of your box and put your ear to it, and, and you wonder what's going on, but you never look out. You never try to find the source. 
If your, your church attendance is about the story and glory of you and not the story and glory of Jesus, then your box has become your idol. Grace, not works. Don't make your religious framework more important than your relationship with God. You need to know that getting things right with God is not about the things you do. It's about how you build a relationship. It's about integrity and your commitment. You can't get yourself right with God in the pew. You have to do it on your knees. You have to do it with a broken heart. How important is your religious box? More important than getting on your knees and letting God work in your life? Proof, not speculation. Let the Bible be your source of inspiration and information, not assumptions based on what you wish the Bible would say or assumptions based on what you were told the Bible says. Let go of things holding you back, things you're emotionally attached to, and move forward into something amazing that God has planned for you. Let Scripture be your guide to validate what He's laying on your heart. Discovery, not old habits. It's time to let go of those unhealthy spiritual habits. time to let God write something new on your heart. Take a peek outside the box at the unexpected things that God is doing. God is the God of the unexpected. Don't miss what He wants to do in your life because you're clinging to the idol of a religious box. Or an atheistic box. Or an anger box. Or a pride box. A box made of works only salvation. A box built by your own sin and stubbornness. It's lonely and miserable in the box. Get out of it. Discover what God wants to do in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for the power of your word and the way you move in lives. God, we pray that you would move in this place here today. We pray that you would speak to hearts that have become calloused behind the walls of their boxes. That you would move in the hearts of those who long to feel your presence in their lives. That you would show them that that's something that's missing is you. And God, we pray that you would just, that your spirit have its way here today. In the name I pray, amen.